Action Park Media. All right, welcome to uh, Ramble on Remote Podcast. The uh, it's the uh, official podcast head of the unofficial TV show, which. Uh, you know, we have traction, we have things happening, which doesn't mean anything until it's on the air. That's how I always, that's how my personality has always been. And, and you know, when Entourage was on, everyone's like, oh, how you feeling? I'm like, until we're picked up for next season. And that was every season. I'm like, you know, until the movie gets picked up, until uh, this. So, you know, my fatalistic attitude is never going to change. While that being said, we have meetings with big people. And they're all liking it. We have a meeting, uh, a couple of meetings next week with people who actually, which is going to be a different thing. You were actually in your first pitch, I think, right? That was your first pitch ever. Uh, no, you and I, you and I pitched. I've 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 done a couple of pitches before with some other people, but you and I pitched like a year. Oh yeah, with Graham, with Graham. But I guess this is you know with a network that can actually yeah. go. Yeah, with, hey, with you. Yeah, and put it on the air. So. Um, so we pitched last week. We're not going to talk about who any of them are with because it wouldn't help us, I don't think. But so uh, what do you think of the pitch? I think it was great. I think the feedback and the questions they were they were asking were were great. And they were an indication of, I think, serious interest. Obviously, um, our team got this meeting put together. They had already seen the pilot. So they were the one that asked for the the creative pitch meeting. So going into it, I knew it was already something that they, that they were interested in. So, and I think that that only got confirmed in the meeting. Yeah. And it's so weird. You know, I, I always, some people tell me I waste my time when I talk about the haters in the world out there, but I get, you know, there's like a few people I get these messages from ramble on will never be successful. Um, you know, just so anyone knows to go so much for dues controlling the media. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> true. But it, you know, just to get a pilot made is beyond successful. It's not the success I aspired to, no. but um, there was a time, you know, where I went, just let me get something made. Let me get it put on film. Let me see it because so many things could happen. And again, I'm in a different place in my life, which, you know, you're actually more in the place I was probably 20 years ago where you're like, I'd like to go make 20 other things. Like this was like a jumping off point to go make 20 other things. I kind of like, I want to make this. Otherwise I want to go play pickleball. Um, but you know, it's, we've got a, a, again, it's, it's now kind of, um, I don't think it's really a debatable issue anymore that people really like the pilot, really liking the pilot and going, let's spend 50 million bucks on season one. Those are obviously very different issues and different things come into each studio and they tell us in the meetings, they say our audience is a little younger. Our audience is a little older. Our audience is a little this or a little that. So, you know, we're, we're trying to thread a needle, but at, at the end of the day um, we're moving forward and next week is two big meetings. Um, and they're one of them is very different because they haven't seen the pilot. So that's a normal traditional pitch, which is, you know, whether we should be doing that or not, I'm not sure what the right answer is because the pilot speaks for itself. And that doesn't mean it says, oh, give us 10 seasons, but it certainly tells you what the show is. And if you hate that, a meeting is probably a waste of time. Um, but at the same point, 
I like to think my persuasion tactics are 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 you know are good and will get them excited to watch it. But I, I don't know. I it's you know I've never had obviously a finished show where I'm pitching it. So this is the first time we'll go into a meeting where they have not seen it and I'm basically telling them what it is. So it's a little weird and I have to readjust the pitch since normally I'm talking to people who've seen it. So would you would you prefer it that way? I mean I isn't it isn't part of our pitch just it's that's our strategy. We can decide whether we're gonna do it that well, way. Well of course we could and I don't have an answer to what it decide because to be honest with you I don't have an answer how this is not on the air now. I am watching the crap that is on television right now and and that's never a good thing, by the way, for all the young writers out there. And I believe me, I said it when I was 21 and you're all saying the same thing now. How is this shit on the air? How is this shit? on? That's it's such an irrelevant way to look at it, because so many things get on the air for a number of different reasons. You might have one executive who absolutely loves the showrunner of that particular show or an actor that they got attached to that. Or what more often happens is an idea is pitched and then people invest so much time and energy into it and they keep moving forward and forward and forward. And they ultimately end up with sometimes a very bad product, but nobody starts out with the intention of, of making a bad show, yeah, but you know, it, it's hard. But for me, what's frustrating is we already have a good pilot, you know, and I know it falls somewhere in the line, depending on your perspective between being good and being great. There's nothing, nobody's going to watch this and go, Oh my God, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. So uh, it would it would be nice if we uh, we had a little easier road, but I guess uh, you just can't enjoy yourself if you don't. So that's the update on the show, and we're gonna have Jordan Belfort, Wolf of Wall Street, on good friend of mine, um, talk about a new book that he's got out. So we'll get into that in a little bit, but let's let's see what else we can talk about, Ted. I don't know if you saw this, but I thought it was a pretty funny story, and I actually appreciate it. And you know. Casey Bloys, who's the president of HBO. I don't know if you saw this story, but um did not. Casey, uh, he 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 put together during the pandemic like a uh, fake troll account where he could uh clap back to critics from television. And it's now like it's a little embarrassing for him, but at the same time, I go, you know what? It would be nice if he had the balls to just come out as the president of HBO and, and say this. clap back at him. <laughs> but he did come out, and I love it because I am, I I am. And you have to remember this critics have been for the most part until the, the, the turn of the universe, which I think we're all now seeing the effects of some of the, the PC culture that has permeated this society for the last five years is, is really turning itself in crazy ways right now, no matter what side you fall on. I think everybody has to go, wow, the world's a little fucked up right now. And I think that was the start of it. But um, television critics were mostly very good to me until about, three or four years ago when these new group of, of fucking losers decided to revise history. But, uh, but I like to clap back at, at the critics, you know, there's this one, I think we talked about on the show, but this, this John Copeland guy from the New York times, which I believe the New York times is truly like the enemy of the fucking state at this point. I think they are absolutely one of the most disgusting newspapers. They revise history constantly. They speak from a biased angle, but um, what this Copeland cocksucker did was uh he writes this article about the, I mean, he wrote a book, actually a terrible book that I don't even want to promote. Maybe three people uh, read it, but, a, but about the, um, the start of HBO and he wrote, why would HBO in 2003 make this bro show called Entourage? And, you know, we were listed almost every year as one of the top shows on TV after that nominated for golden globes and Emmys every year after that. 
So the the way he wrote it without any response and to to say that the New York Times, his fucking paper actually called us the best show on TV in 2004 is I it's not a lot of integrity by, you know, by a human to write it like that. Now, if you want to write, I didn't like it. Uh, wasn't my cup of tea. OK, I, I get that. Koblen, you fucking loser. But anyway, so um, that's why I like that Casey Bloys came out. And, and went after them. I just wish he did it from his own account. Like, why not? I'm the president of HBO so, and I stand behind my show. So for, for not only for our audience, but for me as well. So exactly how did this story get broken that he was doing this and he was the one behind it? You know what? I'm not, uh, I think, I think a disgruntled employee had emails or something. I should have researched it more, <laughs> but it's usually what happens. Like he asked like, his assistant before firing her. <laughs> Like, hey, something password to that troll account that i yeah have? and you know right now it's like i i believe uh any of my assistants and by the way one of my old assistants emailed me uh, uh like a week ago i haven't spoken to her in 10 years and it was wild for her to say like do you remember me um which she's become a successful writer i know she wrote on the new girl and i think her husband is like a, a executive producer on dave which is a great show but she wrote to me like hi hi do you remember me now of course, I remember every assistant and I guess I'm not as uh, I, I guess I was never as busy as anybody else. But I remember Sophia, who I, I loved specifically because the, the first day she worked for me um, and hopefully this shows something about who I am as a person. But the first day she worked for me, I just gotten Porsche was nice enough to get me the first Porsche Panamera in North America, like because they liked the show and because I was going to put it on the show. So I had the first one in North America driving around the streets of Los Angeles. And the first day I got it, Sophia dropped me off at uh, Katsuya on third street. Yeah. And by the time I sat down at my table, I heard a pretty horrific crash <laughs> and the car was not two hours old. And she had dropped me off at the valet and then pulled out into third street and got whatever T-boned. <laughs> she was not my assistant for more than 72 hours at this point. Oh and God, what a nightmare for her. <laughs> yeah. And I heard the crash, um, but I didn't really look out the window or anything, but then my phone rings and she's kind of inconsolable crying and I don't know what's happening. And she had an accent. And I think she would attest to the fact that I said, are you okay? And yeah. she she said yes, and I said, "All right, don't don't worry about it." You know, like I'm sure there's a second Panamera in North America, and we'll we'll figure <laughs> it out. But uh, but anyway, she she was cool, and she uh, sent me a message that she wanted to actually get together with her and her husband, who's now you know apparently a very successful producer in TV, and and Dave, which is a great show. I don't know if you've watched it all, but they've given yeah. us a shout out or two on it, and. Uh, you know, it, it's a very funny show. So, but I guess my point is with De Niro having problems with his assistant right now, his old assistant. Um, I don't know if you're reading any of that stuff, but you know, you, A, you really do have to treat people well, which you should anyway, but B, you really have to make sure you keep a tab and records on what's happening because, you know, you can get accused of something and find yourself in a world of hurt in about five seconds you're telling me uh, you know yeah <laughs> ted actually had a problem we, i i don't know if we ever talked about it on the podcast but we, um we we did we did cover it for i don't know maybe 15 minutes or something like that 
And you can do that, Ted. You can cover yourself or you can like Jordan Belfort. You can write a book about all the crazy shit you did. Turn it into the biggest movie ever. Reinvent your entire life. And we'll we'll talk to Jordan a little bit about uh, about that. But um, yeah, all right. I don't what know if mine is that crazy. No, well, maybe there were no midgets involved. <laughs> you know, you should write a book. You never know. So, yeah. all right. What else can we discuss? Uh, I have well, to get to the movies because we know we've talked about Ramble On being inspired by uh, Sideways. And now Alexander Payne's new movie with Paul Giamatti is out, The Holdovers, which I have to see. Yes, I would like to see that. And the uh, Scorsese movie. Well, let, me know or... if you wanna, let me know if you want to go see that. I, yeah, I, I, I saw Killers of the Flower Moon last Saturday. Do not tell me a word about it except for whether you liked it or not, because I haven't even watched the trailer deliberately. I, I really, I really liked it. Yeah, uh, I mean, it was something. It was something that I had heard very scant information about, and so yeah. getting the real depth of the story was really awesome. I think it's an extremely important story to tell, um, and he did it. You know, look. Obviously, you and I, I think, are both big Scorsese fans. We we love his work. Uh, you know, we're not alone in that. Uh, but this was such a different type of movie for him and such a different film. And he really captured, you know, sort of early century. Oh, 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 oh. I literally oh. don't even know the time life, period. Life in he captured in, life in the United States in an area where uh, the Native Americans were still a present force. And it was really amazing. <laughs> Really? I just want you all to know whoever's listening out there, Ted is so, so desperate to give me information. And I know people might think it's weird. I, when it's Scorsese or Alexander Payne, call oh, me weird you know or not. Nothing about what the story's even about. Nothing. I know okay. Leo's in it. I don't know a single other actor that's in that movie. I don't know the time period. Now, a little bit, I do. I'm guessing the, uh, I'm guessing the 1800s or something, but or no. No, a little, a little, a little later. Like kind uh, of the, probably the 1920. 30s so anyway i'm really excited and jim miller interestingly enough jim miller who actually wrote the good book about hbo that you should read if you want to read the uh history of hbo yes. um he said the movie's perfect he said it's perfect and i know it's 350 which every day it's not, I, it's three, I think it's 327 but it's all right it's, so with trailers is, and everything it is a long movie there's no doubt yeah. about it i was enthralled with it so like for me I, I just kept getting more invested as it went along. Yeah, I don't have um, a doubt that I'm going to love it. I just want to, uh, you know, it's just it's tough to block out, you know, four hours with with a new baby and stuff and and try yeah, to, I, you know, I hear you get us ready for pitch. But anyway, I need to see the holdovers and I need to see that. And I need to do that in the next like seven days. Um, I watched the Gotti documentary on, uh, on Netflix, Netflix. which you should watch. Yeah, it's it's very good. I mean, it's a lot of stuff that I know because that's, you know, my uh, my childhood and dumping grounds. It really is my old style. I mean, my my next door neighbor was John Gotti's heroin dealer. Um, so, um, and you know, I've talked about it on the podcast a little bit. But his his, his does that, son, wait, does that mean that he sold heroin for John Gotti or sold heroin to John Gotti? He sold it for John Gotti, and he did 150 years. His son was his son who who terrorized my high school for a while disappeared and was, uh, you know, Sammy the Bull um, took him out. Um, but uh, his younger son, I was actually friends with, and and Jordan Belfort knows very well as as well. So, um, but anyway, uh, the documentary was good. It was it was well done, and uh, you know you kind of see. It's just interesting to see how easily a gang could kind of could kind of take over a city, and uh, 
you know, there's no reason it can't happen again. And it's like what I'm looking at right now in our country, it's like to keep law and order. It's not that easy. And, you know, you know, and when you have like allegedly the intellectuals starting to turn on law and order, which I think has been happening for almost five years now, at least. And I know that's always been a thing. It's always been a thing of the youth is, you know, anti-establishment and this and that. But I think just what's gone on in the last five years, and I spoke a little bit about it, but people get so cautious about saying anything against it. But I'll I'll say it right now, the the left wing is the scariest thing in this country to me. I like, I'm, I'm clear on what a good old right wing redneck Nazi looks like. But these left wing fucking liberal lunatics who think they know better than everybody on everything and and think they can demand exactly what's supposed to happen everywhere. Those are those are a scary bunch. So I'm actually interested to hear Jordan's take on what's going on right now in the world, because I think this is in my mind, this is the scariest time of my lifetime. And it's not because I'm Jewish. I think we we are in a culture war that is is potentially just a violent explosion waiting to happen. So. Um, and yeah. I'm ready for it, Ted, by the way, I'm just uh, letting you know, I'm ready for it. I am armed and ready. And I love that they have done everything they can to tell us how much they want to take our guns for the last five years. At the same time, while telling us they'll do nothing to protect us. Um, I don't know if you saw that shooting at the Grove yesterday. I mean, a guy in a Lamborghini shot somebody at the Grove. Parking I, I, I saw I didn't see the details, but I saw that there was an alert. Yeah. And I haven't seen how long uh, I, I haven't seen any updates on it, but how how hard is it to find uh, a shooter in a Lamborghini? I mean, that should take yeah, one, about one nine would minutes. Think that's not your best getaway car. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know what's going to happen. Was it yellow? <laughs> yeah, no, it was black Lamborghini. But um, and I think it was a truck, um, which is a little more discreet, I guess. But you would still think that would be uh, a quick turnaround, though. But there's really no cops anywhere that I see anymore. So anyway, what else you got going on? Uh, so you're, I know you're a big fan of the bachelor or have always been watching. I am not a fan of the bachelor. I despise the bachelor. You are a watcher via, via, uh, your, your lovely. Yeah. I know you want to tell me that you've been crying at the golden bachelor. I know you do. The golden bachelor (laughs) is, is actually got a little bit of soul. It's, it's some older people who have been through some real things in life and some real pain. It's not just you know, young people wanting to be famous or calling yeah. each other's eyes out over one guy. Yeah. Uh, so it's, 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 it's interesting what happens when, when different demographics are placed in the exact same scenario as others. I would never want to say, I mean, I, I really, I find it very depressing, but I would never want to say that anything that I would ever take a look at myself while watching the golden bachelor, but that guy, if he's not a complete fraud, is one of the nicest people I've ever seen. Oh, he's unbelievably nice. I, I mean, it's really, it's hard to, it's hard to believe, you know. That he's so nice. Yeah, I mean, and he's so good to every one of those women, and uh, you know, um, so so God bless him for that. But no, I don't, I don't enjoy the show at all. I find it very depressing. Um, <laughs> With the I Golden Bachelor or or regular Bachelor? No, the regular Bachelor is pure garbage. I don't even find it entertaining anymore. Like, if you want good reality, and I've told you this, and I got you to watch one season, but like, Love is Blind is to me is fantastic. Like, it yeah. is actually good television. I enjoy it, um, but I don't enjoy the Bachelor at all anymore. I find it a complete waste of time. But somehow it somehow it ends up like while I'm on the phone or doing something in the background. But um, I don't know what else is good. But uh, I'll tell you what I did do the other day, and. Um, I haven't seen you live in a while, but I don't know if you 
happened to right now are Ted and I own a piece of a major league franchise and they're playing right now. Ted has no idea. That's how rich Ted is. He could care less about his sports team, but the Chicago slice is on right now in the background behind me. Just out, just out of curiosity. Is there some sort of team email that you're getting that says, Hey everybody, here's the schedule and here's the update. <laughs> no. Right. So it's hard. It's very difficult to have any information unless you're out there scrounging the internet just for updates on your pickleball team. I, you know, I'm very, one would think they would publish the schedule to the team ownership. It would be a, it would be a smart thing to do, but to be honest with you, I'm hiding from team ownership because, you know, pickleball, as you sort of know from me telling you, not because you've actually read about it, but they have spent so much money on these players and stuff. And nobody's called us and said, Hey guys, you better write another check. So I'm hoping that never happens because I'm- Wait a second. What do you mean they've spent money on players? They guaranteed millions and millions of dollars in player contracts over the last two months. Why? I have no idea where the money's coming from. Well, they believe that it's going to be a big, successful sport. Um, but really what I was getting to, aside from our sport, um, I haven't seen you live in a couple of months, but I have- uh, No, no. We, I saw you last month. We did a, We did a podcast a few weeks ago. All right. So three weeks ago, but I'm proud to say I, I have been in the gym five days a week for almost four months. Now I'm down 20 pounds of fat. I have to be up at least 10 pounds of muscle. I don't know how you actually can, can add it up, but I just wanted to know I, like whatever it's worth. I'm 55 going on 56. Did you see the shot that I posted on Instagram yesterday? Because anyone can say whatever they want. I, I did not. Why? What did you post? I mean, that's just horrifying. Not only did I not only did I put it on Instagram, I sent it to you in a text. Okay, it's there. Wait, I what? mean, it's you're not going to see a better 55 year old shot this year in any sport. Period. End of story. I just want to say that. So um, you can check that out your leisure. Everybody else can as well. But I, I um, do want to say I I did not receive any text from you with any video. You and Scotty, I sent it to on the same chat. Oh, 100%. Was the one on Scotty. Scotty oh. didn't respond either. I know Scotty Wilson, uh, you know, beefy Scotty, head of Action Park Media, is in the background beefy right now somewhere. Scotty. He considers himself somewhat of an athlete, but I would like to see his best hockey highlight because I don't think it will live up to uh, what I what I just posted. So are you watching it right now? I, I, I see it now. I'm watching It's a pickleball point. Yeah, I, I mean, come on. You could mistake me for Federer in that, in that post. I mean, come on. <laughs> Oh, what a shot. Yeah. Come on. I mean, you can't, you cannot. I mean, I have professional tennis players going, that was sick. There's nothing I can say. Yeah, I mean, good for Query you. and Stevie Johnson and, uh, you know, Michael Chang's wife said wow. fire. Michael Chang's wife? Yeah, well, Michael, I'm sure she showed it to Michael and that was him as well. <laughs> I'm sure that was a combined couple saying that was fire. But anyway, um, <laughs> But my bigger point is I'm healthier than I've been in I'm in 20 years at least. I'm I'm at the same way that I was when I graduated college. I want to put on 10 more pounds, but um I'm getting ready for the war, Ted, because I think it's coming. And uh I don't know that physical fitness is gonna help against an RPG from a fucking lunatic terrorist, but um, but I'm getting ready. So I hope you are do too. Some, do some Sudoku puzzles so you can sharpen your mind and keep that active. <laughs> that's that's how that's how older people can contribute through wisdom you know what i i've tried through wisdom i don't i don't know that my wisdom is <laughs> you're, is you're helping anybody i hope it is you give but, up <laughs> well i i know the, the best wisdom i have to offer right now is this television show i'm hoping these meetings next week are are really you know are really deliver us to the next place because this is i i really do find this absurd already but um we'll see what happens so yeah 
And that's all I got, unless you got something else. Welcome we'll be back. back with Jordan Belfort. Old friend, great man who's done some amazing things. Um, turned his whole life around, and it just keeps getting better and better. And you can see from the background and the uh, slenderness of his arms right now in that great tan. <laughs> Jordan Belfort, what's happening? What's up, buddy? How's everything in California? I, you know, I moved out of there. I, just, I just couldn't take the state taxes anymore. It's just too much, you know? It's too there's, much. There's nothing good happening here right now. I mean, there really right. is nothing good happening here right now. It's pretty scary. And I, I want to get to your book. You have a new book, um, which- Here it is. Look, know, check it out. Wolf of Investing. It's, yeah. It looks beautiful. And, you know, I had, I had an early copy of this book. I had an early copy of Wolf of Wall Street. Um, am I missing the boat if I don't start figuring out a movie on this one or what? <laughs> I don't know if this one's really made, you know, for a movie as much as probably a, an online learning course, but really, you know, this really answers the question like, of, you know, what do you do with the money that you have left over after you pay all your bills and, you know, and, and it's, you know, you've done your, your, your fun stuff, your vacations, but you have some money that, you know, you look at to put to work and how do you take that and turn that into a multi-million dollar nest egg when you're waiting, when you're ready to retire. That's what this book really answers. So there's one side I've always in the past focused on like, how do you make more money, you know, as an entrepreneur, how do you increase your sales and become a closing machine? So you make more money as a salesperson. But then the next question is, what do you do with the money that you have? How do you put that to work to make more money? And I, and what inspired me to write this book was I saw in my own family, very successful, this is getting blown out in the stock market as an investor, just doing everything wrong. And when I went through their portfolio, I'm like, I can't believe this such a small person would just, not understand how how simple it actually is to make a fortune in the stock market the right way over time. So what I lay out is a very, very, uh, I would say close to foolproof strategy for taking even a small amount of money, as little as $10,000, even less, by the way, and then um, adding a little bit to it each quarter, each month, maybe $50, $100, hopefully more, and have millions of dollars waiting for you when you're ready to retire. That's what this book shows you how to do. And it's, and it's like literally and arguably the truth about investing. I, I love it because obviously things are going so well for you right now and you're speaking all the time and you don't have to spend your time sitting down, which writing is always, I think you would agree, the hardest part of all of these, these endeavors, but you wanted to do this. And is there, I know you can't sum it up quickly, but what's a couple of tips right now that we could do that I could do before I run out of money? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so <laughs> but writing is a, is a gut wrenching experience. I love having written hate writing, right? Yeah. Right. So, um, but you're a brilliant writer, by the way. Um, so so um, here's the, the, the basis. So look, look at it this way. The problem that most people have when they are thinking about investing is they will follow the, the axiom that like, if I want to get the best result possible, I need to seek out an expert to help me do my stuff. Like, for example, if you're sick, let's say your, your appendix is about to burst, you have a terrible stomachache. Well, I would suggest you go to a surgeon a doctor, right? And have him take out your appendix versus trying to do it yourself or have your wife do it. You can get a much better result with the expert, with the surgeon. Same thing is true if your pipes break in your house and the water's leaking. I would go out and hire a licensed plumber who's an expert to fix your pipes rather than fixing them yourself. And if you have an electrical short in your house, hire an electrician because you're going to get a much better outcome and probably not kill yourself is if you hire the professional. So you always look to see the expert. Same is true for accounting. If you want to do your taxes and save money, if you want to, if you have problems or you're looking to start a business, get a lawyer versus trying to do it all yourself. Those are, are really smart things. And we've been conditioned to think that way since we're very small. The one exception to that, though, is investing. 
when you bring in an expert, a stockbroker, a financial planner, a hedge fund manager, a mutual fund, they are going to get a worse result than you can yourself. Why? Because they're all trying to do one thing, which is basically proven to be impossible, and that is beat the market. Beat the actual, the S&P 500, which is the, the, the biggest 500, the biggest, baddest 500 companies in the U.S., right? And they form an index, meaning there's one price for all 500, right? And every fund manager, every stockbroker, every financial advisor, they're all trying to beat this index. And guess what? It's been proven mathematically, historically, economically, study after study after study, that it's fucking impossible on a consistent basis, especially when you can deduct the fees, the commissions, the performance bonuses that all the experts charge, you end up getting a worse result by hiring an expert, and substantially so. And, and this is, again, it's not just me saying this. It's a well-known fact. Warren Buffett, who I know you know personally, made a million-dollar bet about this, where he said, I'll bet a million dollars that any one of you hedge funds cannot beat the S&P 500 over a 10-year period. And someone made the bet. They chose 100 top-performing hedge funds, and at the end of year seven, they threw in the towel. Buffett destroyed them. But it didn't even go 10 years, right? So this is so simple to do. Now, obviously, there's a bit more to it than that. Like, what type of, which of the many, many S&P 500 funds do you want to invest in? What type of account do you want to do that? And we know, is it, a, is it in your personal account? Is it, a, is it an IRA, a Roth IRA, or for, so there's a, a more nuances. And I go through all of this in the book. And also there's a couple of other things you want to balance that out with some bonds, a very small amount of bonds and whatnot, right? But generally speaking, this is like to make money in the stock market, like real money, big money is one of the easiest things to do if you stop listening to like the 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 the, the fuckwits on CNBC who are telling you to buy this sell that this is going up they're, they're about to release news and as, as if somehow you can watch them and listen to them follow their advice and do better than you can do by just simply buying and holding the whole market for the long term you can't so and, and a lot of them are lying anyway right i mean a lot of them are, have their own positions and their own motivations for what they're trying to do um, and get out at the right time, which obviously they're ahead of the curve when they're on TV already. It's uh, yeah, well, I, I think this is, I, you know, again, some of them, like, you know, the, the, the legitimate ones, like, like on CNBC. So I don't, I don't, like, you, like, a, like Jim Cramer is a fucking idiot. I mean, this guy is, has destroyed more portfolios than anyone, any 10 people I know, but I don't think he's doing it because he's making money on the other end. He's not, I don't think Jim Cramer trades against his viewers. Yeah. His, the, the stocks he's dealing with, he couldn't do that. His vice just sucks. Yeah. This is wrong. And he changes his mind every two days. And it's not that he's a stupid man. He's a smart guy, Jim Cramer. He knows the market well. But he's incapable because he's just a, you can't beat the market. There's like a, a handful of people who have done that consistently. The only problem is you can't give them your money. Yeah. They're not they're, they're not accepting your money. The biggest hedge fund managers in the world who, you know, there's a few of them that have done really, really well consistently, you know, but they, those funds are closed. And what happens is the rest of the industry kind of basks in the afterglow of these hedge fund superstars and they'll advertise, oh, you know, give me your money because I'm a hedge fund. And they charge the same 20% performance bonus, 2% management fee, right? Plus expenses. And they suck. Well, they're just okay. So when you, let's say they, they beat the market by 1% or 2%, which is a miracle. They usually don't even do that. But when you deduct their fees and everything, you're behind 4 or 5%. And even worse, the way it works is every year they do the calculations. So in years where they make money, they take 20% of the profits 
And when they lose money, you have to pay 100% of the losses. So it's right. heads they win, tails you lose, basically, right? So over the long term, this amounts to a dr drastic reduction in your ability to start compounding your profits year after year. And that, by the way, is the secret to the whole thing, is it relying on long-term compounding. So for example, if you, I think what stops people from doing this strategy, which is the most effective, is that they'll say, I only got $10,000. I need to find the next penny stock that's going to become Apple, the next token that's going to become Bitcoin. This, they, they think they have to make an extraordinary gain to get ahead in life. But that is not true. A little bit of money that compounds consistently over a long period of time, for most of your viewers, you're probably skewer on the younger side, right? By the time you're ready to retire, you'll have millions of dollars in your portfolio without starting off with very much money at all provided that you do it right. You play the game and have patience and don't try to outsmart the market. So that's the book I wrote basically. And I also talk about speculation because there's nothing wrong with speculating. Like for example, yes, if you enjoy trading and that stuff, take 5% of your capital and speculate. And I explain how to do that effectively, as effectively as you can. But generally speaking, that's not gonna give you as good a result as simply the long-term strategy of buying a, a certain type of index from the very low expenses, reinvesting dividends, putting into certain types of accounts where you can defer taxes and so forth. That is a way to retire with a massive amount of money. Uh, so uh, obviously what you're saying is very interesting. And if people can find the time and, and actually focus on what this is and follow it. But let me ask you this because you finished the book probably four months ago. Yeah, a little longer, six probably, yeah. And what I always love about you is you're kind of an eternal optimist. And you kind of, that's what you have. It's what you bring to the table. You make people feel good. You make people think life is good. I think, and we've talked a little bit about it, but the last five years, the world has been shifting, shifting, shifting. We've now seen it explode in a way that I'm pretty yeah, horrified. What? Horrifying. Hor yeah, I'm horrified too. Yeah. And I guess I guess my question to you is, which I'm looking for, hopefully from an optimist point of view. Do you see, we've always said, if you're smart and you think long-term and you do it, there is ways to do what you're saying. And I hope these strategies can help everybody. Do you see the long-term of the United States in the same way as you saw it five, 10 years ago? And what's your outlook uh, on what's going on right now? So here, here's the way I look at it, right? The world's been on the verge of explosion for the last hundred years. It's, it's always something. World wars, there's, there's you know, pandemics, there's uh, problems. And, you know, if you, anytime you think back, there was the oil embargo in the 70s, mass inflation. The Russia was going to take over the world. In the 80s, Japan was going to take over the world. Now China's going to take over the world. And I have no fucking idea what's going to happen in 10 or 20 years. And I really, really don't. What I do know is this, the American way of business, and I've traveled all over the world. The, the biggest companies out there are U.S.-based companies primarily, okay? And also the companies that I'm talking about buying do half their business overseas. So it's global exposure that you're getting. So right. I think what's going to end up happening which has kind of been proven historically is that the worse it gets, the larger gap there is between the rich and the poor. It's the middle class that gets squeezed. The rich are always going to be rich. I've had the best years I've ever had in the last few, and those just keep getting better because people that really know how to make a lot of money will make a lot of money in any type of economy. Now, what's going on in the world? People on the bottom sucks and they're on the bottom, and they're always going to probably stay there unless they change their way of thinking. It's the middle class 
that gets sque- their balls squeezed off, and they end up getting, you know, just having to work harder and harder to, to you know, a dollar, a nickel buys, a, a, a 10 cents buys a nickel's worth now, right? Basically, right? So, so the question really is, I don't think that no matter what happens with the U.S., okay, the biggest companies are going to be the biggest companies and they're going to continue to thrive and grow. And by the way, the way this, the S&P 500, which again is, is the 500 biggest, baddest, most profitable companies in the U.S., well, guess what? These, these 500 companies are not the same 500 companies that there were in 75 or 85 or 95 or even 2015 or 2000. They change every three months. They meet and they remove the ones that aren't doing as well and put the other ones that are doing the best. So no matter what happens, you're going to have 500 massive companies that are growing and taking over, and they have just such critical mass, right? So by investing this way, you yeah, the economy might get tougher. Inflation might go up. Who knows what's going to happen with China? I think it's somewhat overblown, the whole China thing, by the way. I really do. Because I remember when I was a teenager or in my early 20s, it was Japan. They're going to be the next great power. And suddenly you realize all the shit that happens in Japan. It was all, A lot of it was pumped up in a fraud. And they're still recovering from that, by the way. Not that Japan doesn't still have huge companies and lots of million built in millionaires and billionaires but again it gets harder and harder in these countries when when the economy is not doing well so i think the u.s is heading in that type of direction where it's just not going to be where like the greatest generation everybody gets to move upward and you know everyone buys a house it's going to get very tough on the middle class so the question is if you're in the middle class right now or you know hopefully above or maybe even the lower middle class how do you protect yourself against that and the way is is to maximize your exposure Okay, to all the massive value that Wall Street creates. Let me explain that. Wall Street, you could hate them, and most people do hate Wall Streeters, right? I worked there, I understand how hateable it can be. Nonetheless, Wall Street is a necessary part of the US economy. They create massive value. They find the companies to finance. They finance them. They raise money in bond offerings. They maintain the credit and debt markets. Without Wall Street, we would be fucked. I'm serious. We would be really, really fucked. That's the useful side of Wall Street that that creates massive value. Then there's the not-so-useful side or the dark underbelly where they create bubble after bubble, after bubble, they're behind massive frauds, manipulations. They overcharge people. They churn accounts. They ex- encourage excess trading. Uh, they do all this negative shit that costs the average person hundreds of billions of dollars uh, uh, over, over time, right? It's almost like the mafia, like the way the mafia used to sit atop the whole U.S. economy and extract a little bit of money at the ports, at the trucking points, everywhere, right? And, and it made the five families incredibly rich and every other American paid a little bit more for everything, made their life a little bit less awesome, right? And some of that's what Wall Street does. So the question really is, is how do you maximize your exposure to the massive wealth that Wall Street creates without getting sucked into the bullshit and all the, the nonsense they throw out into the market to rape and pillage the village. And the answer is this book is tells you how to like extract all that value without getting sucked into the corrupt casino. In other words, the market, stock market is like a casino on some level. Like when I mean, you go into a casino, like what happens? Well, the odds are stacked against you, right? So in any given game, the odds might be 5% in the house's favor, sometimes a bit more with slot machines. But generally speaking, that they, every game, I think poker at least, but every game, the house has the edge. And over time, the longer people play, the house wins. 
right? Some people can win, most people lose, and all these beautiful hotels are built and all this massive wealth is created for the casinos because they win over time. That's a, that's a, a regular casino that's abiding by the law and not trying to screw you. They just are, it's built in that they win, right? But then you have a corrupt casino where not only are the odds stacked against you inherently, but they have loaded dice, they deal from the bottom of the deck. They have shows in their play. That's a that's Wall Street. It's a corrupt casino. So it's not just that the odds are stacked against you because there's better computers that they're using and they have access to more information. The whole thing is stacked against you. So you know how do you play the game of the stock market without getting sucked in? Well, the answer is this: It's like the old movie War Games. The only way to win is not to play. If you want to win, not don't play their game. And that is avoid all short-term trading, investing. Don't try to time the market. Don't try to figure out what stock is going to be the big winner, what will be a loser. You're just, human beings are terrible stock pickers, and you're going to lose that way. Better, the better, and this has been proven mathematically, economically, historically, right? Best way, simply, is a long-term strategy where you have exposure to all the best companies, and you sit back and let time do the heavy lifting for you. If you do that... You're, it's about as close to a guarantee that you can get because over the last hundred years, you have never lost. That's a pretty good track record, right? Over the last, you, if you use this strategy and buy and held, okay, and started when you were younger, younger versus older, and just hey, save for retirement. When you were done, you would have millions of dollars in your retirement account waiting for you to live whatever life you want. And I wish I would have been given this advice when I was 25 or 35 years old. Instead, I bought a lot of stocks. I did well because I was in VC and stuff, but still I've taken my losses as well. This is the strategy. And, and also, you know, it's not that it's a secret. Like if you ask Warren Buffett, he said this a hundred times, do this. Exactly what I say in the book, Warren Buffett has said this to anyone who's asked him publicly, right. privately, Google, right? The problem is, is that while the strategy is known and it's in other books, it, these books are dry and boring and like, you fall asleep while you're reading them. So I knew if I was going to write this book, okay, you know, The Wolf of Investing, I'd have to make it laugh out loud, funny, irreverent. So it's like written in a voice. I don't just teach you about investing. I tell you stories that are laugh out loud, funny. So you're laughing your ass off, having fun, but you're getting everything you need to build a, a world-class portfolio that will allow you to retire wealthy, even if you're not wealthy now. That's the I secret. Love it. I love it. I love the war games reference to it. Very few people would throw that one out there. And I think it, I want to talk a little bit about the world at this moment right now and how you think it affects because war games was such a prescient movie. Everyone talks about 2001, but war games really like looks like what's happening right now in a very easy, everyone should watch that movie right now with uh, Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy. And I think John Badham directed that movie, but um what do you, what's your thought on AI? I mean, what's your pessimistic, optimistic? What do you think about this? I'm, I'm generally optimistic about it. But again, I, I think what's, what it's going to do is going to increase the divide between the rich and the poor, the, the highly technically educated and those that are like kind of computer illiterate. I think that, you know, it's going to get to a certain point. We're just seeing the tip of the tip of the iceberg right now, where if you're not, using these tools in your business or in your life, you're going to be at a massive, massive disadvantage to everyone else around you. And I think that's also why like, uh, these bigger companies are going to have a huge edge because these big companies are equipped to integrate artificial intelligence into their business while the smaller business owners or medium size are not are going to be behind the curve. Um, so I, I think that 
it's going to, again, increase between the haves and the have-nots. I don't think it's going to create any sort of, it's not going to democratize life in any way. I think it's going to exaggerate that. Now, do I think it's going to end up in like, uh, you know, a Terminator type solution where Skynet's going to launch nuclear (laughs) weapons? You know, I, I, I don't think so. I, I, that's just my, my gut tells me no. Um, but that's just like, again, I, you know, I guess it could happen. Um, but I, I don't, I don't know. Something tells me not. Yeah. And what are you doing to stay healthy right now? You look as healthy as I've seen you. Um, what are you doing? So what I'm, I'm doing a couple of things. Number one, I'm, I'm really into this whole uh, longevity stuff. So I'm, I'm taking lots of supplements every single day. I'm following Sinclair, who, you know, the life extension stuff. So I'm taking a lot of the stuff he recommends. Um, I'm following others as well, like really leading people about what supplements you have my blood tested, my genetics done. Um, and I'm taking supplements that sort of work with my own genetic code, my own DNA to sort of shore up any inherent weaknesses I have and build on my strengths. And then also what I think has really been one of the biggest, you know, um, sort of, you know, booms for me personally was doing ice plunges every single day. So I started about six, seven months ago, I started doing ice baths, right? And like everything else, I can get addicted to shoe polish. If, if, if shoe polish was addictive, I can get addicted to it. So I got addicted to taking ice baths. The good news is it's a healthy addiction. So every single day I do about between eight to 10 minutes at 30, oh, 35 degree water, like ice, like literally just a few days, few degrees above freezing. I go in there and uh, I just soak in that. And it's, it just literally improved my, it's, it melts any fat you have off the, off your body, because when you warm back up, you have to burn calories, right? It increases what's called brown fat, which burns energy uh, and keeps you warm. And it's take away a lot of my aches and pains. Um, and I just think generally also mentally, I get like it's like a major endorphin rush, a dopamine rush from going in ice. So I, so I, and in fact, I missed a few days. So I was traveling and I just, I usually make them bring ice in my hotel. I bring up 50 buckets of ice. I do everywhere I go, I do ice baths, but this was, <laughs> it was cold in New York and I was busy on tour. I missed a few days and I felt it. I got back and the first thing I did, I jumped in ice water and did like, you know, eight minutes this morning and just like felt amazing from that. So I think that's a so really important. Why you're in, of- why you're in there, it feels good to you. To me, it feels great when I'm in there and it feels even better when I get out. But I don't I don't get cold when I'm in the ice bath. Your body, for the first month or so, you will. And you have to get used to that. You start off with much less time, maybe you know, a minute, then up to two, then eventually. But very soon, your brain rewires and, and you start to, you, you get past this idea that you're panicking and you're cold and you realize that, you know, your, your body can more than handle it. And it starts to feel really invigorating, especially on a hot day when you jump into ice. It's like just absolutely amazing. So I'm doing that. And then also I'm doing intermittent fasting. You know, I'm, I'm trying not to eat for 12, 14 hours at a time. Um, and I'm not always doing that, but I do it probably at least three days a week, four days a week. I'll intermittent fast. And, uh, and yeah, and then stem cells and stem cells. I'm going to go to Costa Rica, getting stem cells. So I'm doing everything I can. I'm looking for the fountain of the middle age, dog. You know how it how, is. How, you know? Well, it's working, but how about your diet? Because the last time we ate together, we had a cream sauce uh, pasta with, with some truffles on it. So how's the diet? I had that again the other day, but I, I love white <laughs> truffles. I know myself, but no, my diet's really is good. I, I, I cut out pretty much all sugar from my diet, right? Good. Cause that yeah. was a big thing. I used to eat too, way too much sugar. Right. Um, and uh, I'm fortunate in the sense that like, because of the, um, the ice plunges, right. 
I've, I've gotten so like, I, I have no fat on my body. Really. I have, I have fat internally. I have fat internally around my organs more than I used to. So the fat has moved from my top of my <laughs> stomach to inside my body where it's healthy and protects me and keeps me warm. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so, um, I, I could eat pretty much whatever I want without getting weight at this point. Right. So I'm, I'm about, probably about eight to 10 pounds, maybe 10 pounds lighter than I was six months, seven months ago. Right. From going in ice. Um, but I, I tried to eat, you know, healthier, that I, I I think sugar is is just the worst thing in the world. And I try to eat gluten free yeah. pasta when you know most of the time. But other than that, I'm I'm not a big eater. I'm not a big drinker. I don't drink a lot of alcohol. My thing was always I love drugs, right? And all the great drugs are gone now. <laughs> they killed them. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's so sad. And what's what about you? How so? What, you know how are things on your side of the of the uh, of the United States on the West Coast there? What's going with the writer strike and the actor strike? The actor strike. The actor strike is allegedly going to end next week. I don't want to like predict it, but supposedly that's what I'm hearing. Um, you know, uh, Ted and I were talking about the show. We've got some big meetings with big studios next week. Hopefully get this thing going and back up and running health wise. I've, I've been a, a, a beast. I've changed my entire diet. I'm in the gym five days a week. I actually, weirdly enough, had a whole conversation about a cold plunge two hours ago with someone else. So I need, I need to get one. Uh, get I one. know I know how good it is, but I've been, I've been really healthy and, uh, you know, I got a new baby. I got to make it to their, uh, I said, I got to make it to my baby's 60th birthday party. That's my goal. So we'll see. Here's, what, we you do. Do. Here's what you do. I just did this. With my grandson, right? I put, I start off by putting $10,000 into, uh, an account and I had him buy you know, following the advice of this book. Right. So yeah. I did it for my grandson. I did it for my kids. Right. And every single month I'm going to throw $10,000 in every single month, 10,000, 10,000, 10,000, you know, I'll probably 50 million when he's, when he's, when he turns, 30 years old, you know what I'm saying? That's, yeah. and you should do that for your kid and also for yourself. It's never too late, but I, I really would strongly, everyone is watching, listen, uh, uh, you know, you could say, ah, fuck the future, but then the future fucks you. You know, the future's coming fast and we're living longer than we used to. We just are. And if you're not investing your money the right way, it's just, it's just, it's ridiculous. Cause I think you're right. It is a scary world out there. And I think it's going to get tougher and tougher and tougher. So to not, take the money that you are able to save and put that money to work for you in a way that it's going to assure or virtually assure that you can retire and have a great life. I and mean, fuck, I mean, you'll find yourself in your sixties or late fifties or seventies, whatever it's going to be. And you're like, still have to work. Every bit is on. You have nothing saved. You can't travel. You can't have any freedom. So I really would employ your readers. Like just like a book is like the best. It's so cheap to buy a book. It's like 20 bucks, right? It's like the best investment you could ever make in your life is a, a book that really shows you what to do. And this one, I think, answers the most important question of all is, you know, what do I do with the money that I have? How do I invest that money the right way and not get sucked into the latest? In fact, the, the last chapter is called Meet the Fuckers instead of Meet the Fuck. Mm. And that's right. all the people who try to fuck you over and, 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 and get you to invest in the wrong shit, whether it's on TikTok, TV, brokers, financial planners, or it shows you what to do, what not to do. And also, if you want to speculate a little bit of money, how to speculate wisely. Well, I, I give my biggest endorsement because I saw, I saw you, Jordan, right when you got out of jail. You completely told me you were going to turn everything around. <laughs> and what is it, a decade now? Where are we now? Two decades almost. Almost two decades. Almost two already? Oh, 20, I got out in 2005, so it's like we're going almost you know 18 years. Can you believe it? I, I can't believe it. And you've really—it's uh, unbelievable what you've done. And with the books, I love that you wrote another one, which I need a signed copy. I just have like yeah, a, uh, yeah. you know, a manuscript on email now, so I need a signed copy. And uh, it was awesome to have you. And let me know when you're out here. Thanks, we'll get buddy. Some, yeah, we'll get some cream sauce. Uh, Sounds good. Going. Thanks.
Pleasure. Right. Thanks a lot. Great to Thank see you. you in the book. Jordan, just hold it up one more time. But The Wolf of Investing. It's, it's actually number one on Amazon right now in all books for business, stock, investing, and stuff. And uh, I got to, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really I'm really confident that anyone who reads this is going to be very, very thankful they did because it's going to allow you to, to, uh, to retire one day and be wealthy, whether you are now or it. not. I love it. Thanks so much, Jordan. I'll talk to you soon. Take All right, care, be bro. well. Bye.